0: One, I hear some sibilance, which is usually an indication of amplification. <clears throat> okay, she's going to turn me up. I'll uh,
1: embrace the microphone a bit more. A welcome to Spirit Rock. I'm Kevin Griffin, and this is the
0: Dharma and Recovery class, even calling it a class might be you know, a little too fancy, but um, before I begin, I'm going to mention that next weekend, on Sunday, I'll be teaching a day-long retreat here in this building, although not necessarily in this room, uh, called Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. And if you've been hanging out with me lately, you know that that's the title of a book that I am attempting to write, God willing. Uh, Forgive me for mentioning him. Um, And uh, so it's not a specifically recovery-oriented day long, although um, it it certainly um, is applicable, I think. And there's another day long going on that day. And the group that gets the most people signed up gets to have this room. So it's not that my ego <laughs> is involved in this or at all, but I want you all to sign up. You don't have to come. <laughs> you just sign up. Uh, right, Paige? Because you don't... right? I mean, Yes, and, um, you know, it's not that I'm competing with other teachers, but, like, you know, we have to show them
1: (laughs) that we're the best. The other room is nice. See... An addict, you know. <laughs> it's good to have somebody
0: like that behind me. Criminals, you know. The criminal mind, yes. Yes, game the system. Hmm? Dharma punks, yeah. I know, I
1: heard about you people. Yeah. And then next month, in
0: March, I am doing a recovery-oriented, actually, weekend, three-day uh, Non-residential retreat that's called Sutta Recovery, early Buddhist teachings on clinging and letting go, or something like that. And that I don't know how I got away with coming up with that as a topic, but I think Spirit Rock was just like they have these extra rooms. They're like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So what that is, because it's probably kind of impenetrable title. Um, it's looking at some of the early teachings, the traditional teachings out of what's called the Pali Canon, uh, ancient Buddhist teachings, and kind of using those really early teachings to look at uh, their connections to re- uh, addiction and recovery, and and that's. You know uh, m- what's been happening with my teaching more and more is that I've found and my practice that I just find myself more and more drawn into the the original teachings, um, and I, and I think that's sort of a natural evolution for many Buddhist practitioners. You know, you start out kind of reading the fun stuff, the uh, you know, um, Pema Chodron and Sylvia Borstein and all this great writers, Jack Cornfield, uh, people that really um, make the teachings very accessible. And then at a certain point you start going, well, but they're saying the Buddha said this, but what did he really, like, let me see what he really said. Or you start to, like, look between the cracks, like, wait. Um, and so uh, you start to dig into these translations now that are available, which are really amazing, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi especially has done some incredible translations over the last twenty years and um, you know at first it 's really hard to you know kind of get a grip on 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 these texts they 're uh, very repetitive and they use this kind of odd language in many times and and uh, you start to you kind of feel like you have to decode it so after a while you do start to decode it, and then it starts to, you know, become really fascinating. And one of the things that I love about those texts is that many of them actually are filled with stories. And a lot of the teaching that the Buddha did was based on some situation that was going on around him, or even just a story he would make up. Uh, It was very... um, Sort of poetic, even though the the language of the of the sutras isn't poetic, the the stories are. I guess poetic isn't quite the right word, but there, but there's, um, you know, he's very into metaphor, and and um, you know he'll tell a story and then he'll say explain what the symbolism is. So uh, you know, I'm finding that uh, really interesting, and and hopefully. Uh, Others will find it interesting as well. The book that I'm working on is based on several suttas.
1: Um, and it's uh, pretty rich. Because uh, one of the things
0: that I like about it, and I'm not going to keep talking much longer, we're going to meditate in a couple of minutes. But one of the things that I like about it is that, you know, as a contemporary Western, you know, Buddhist teacher. Uh, I, You know, I, uh, even that title is a, a little difficult to swallow. But um, when I write something, I kind of want to check, like, well, is that really a legitimate thing to say about Buddhism? I mean, it's okay if I just want to say something and not claim that, you know that it's a Buddhist statement, or whatever, that it's aligned with Buddhism. But, but I, I really want to know that. Okay, is this really true? Um, and it's one of the reasons why I've taken, you know, certainly one breath at a time. I had I asked uh, a monk to to read it. Ajahn Amaro read the whole manuscript, and kind of went over it, so that I would feel that, even though I knew I was kind of coming at Buddhism from this different angle, obviously the 12 steps and recovery, that that it still uh, was in in harmony and not not um, taking too many liberties. Uh, with the teachings. Because it can get like that. You know, you see these kind of quotes that people throw up on the internet, you know, Facebook. It's like, the Buddha said this. And I'm always like, hmm, I'd like to see what the reference is for that. Because you can kind of translate it, and then you kind of turn it into your own language, and then you make it like, you know, smooth out the rough edges. And after a while, it's like, is it Buddhism anymore? You know, that's kind of the question. So uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of playing around those areas. So um, I've been as I've been working with loving kindness as a as a topic in my writing uh, this year and last year. (laughs) uh, Now that we're in a new year, um, I don't usually teach loving kindness meditation. the practice itself. Uh, mainly because it takes a lot of work. You know, and uh, I try to avoid work whenever I can. Or as I put it to one of my friends last week, I always look for the opportunities to be lazy. You know. It's part of my practice. You know? find those moments of laziness There haven't been enough of them lately too I have to say Uh, but uh, I am planning to go to Pebble Beach on Sunday and watch the last round of the golf tournament so that'll be three hours of driving each way and four or five hours of walking around if you call that lazy (laughs) but anyway it's unproductive let's put it that way Where was I? Oh yeah, why I don't teach loving-kindness meditation. I'm glad I have one fan who's laughing at me. Thanks, Daniel. So I thought maybe I would, you know, after that prelude, I I better be planning to teach a little loving-kindness meditation tonight. So yeah,
1: I thought I would do that a bit. Yes, I said I was going to stop talking,
0: but I'm I'm going to say a couple more things now um, about this practice. Um, And and, you know, one of the things that happens, I'm sure, uh, some if not many of you have done some writing, some significant writing in your life. And when you get into writing, in any kind of a creative uh, way, it becomes a process of discovery. It's not that I'm transcribing these ideas that I like have all like outlined, and now I'm just going to write down all the. It's as it's as you're writing, you discover new questions, and and you know I'll I'll say something, and then I'll be like, wait, what does that mean? So um, you know I I was writing today about. Uh, the, basically the intersection of mindfulness and loving-kindness as practices. Uh, because there are some teachers who actually don't teach loving-kindness because they feel that if you, when you practice mindfulness, that it actually opens you into loving-kindness organically, that you don't have to sort of implant loving-kindness along with your mindfulness practice. And the way I think that works is that as we practice mindfulness and become more sensitive to our inner life and to the outer world around us, there's a natural heart opening that happens with that sensitivity. We start to feel our own suffering. And, we, and as we feel our own suffering and see it in the context of dharma rather than in the con- context of it's about me, The context of dharma is seeing, oh, this is what's happening within me is a natural uh, experience of being alive, of being a human. And so when we see that, we then think or realize that we share these experiences with the beings around us. And so naturally out of that comes compassion. Mm. And sometimes it's easier to have compassion for others, but the wise uh, view is to see that compassion for others and compassion for ourselves are, are really the same thing and and um, that that it makes no sense to only have compassion for others or to only have compassion for yourself uh, so so, I do think that if you just practice mindfulness in a very sincere way uh, that it it does open you up in that way, but um, there is also an elegance to the to the uh, loving kindness or metta practice um, and uh and some of the pointing that it does can can help us to really um, see that see how that works and and where it's uh, kind of needed. Um, there's, there's a whole um, opening that can happen through the practice. And uh, besides that, it just gives us kind of a structure to work with. The loving kindness practice is very structured, and that's one of the reasons people like it uh, because where if you're just trying to follow your breath, it can the mind can sort of drift more easily. The loving kindness practice kind of keeps you. Uh, On the ball a little bit more, so I'll take you through uh, through the basic form, and uh, and we'll see how long that takes. Um, We're going to sit for about thirty minutes. So if we if that doesn't take the full thirty minutes, then we'll just sit with the breath or with whatever you feel like sitting with. Okay. So just settling into your posture. And if you're sitting on a chair, you should you know, put both feet on the floor, if they, at least if they reach. If they don't reach, I recommend getting some kind of a cushion and putting it under your feet. Uh, stability is um, an important physical element of sitting meditation. You can close your eyes. Or if you're not comfortable closing your eyes, or if you're sleepy, you can just lower your gaze so that you're not
1: sort of getting involved in the visual world. As you close your eyes, just letting the attention come into your body.
0: The feeling the overall energy of your body,
1: having a sense of releasing, softening.
0: Oh, it's helpful to relax the jaw, soften the belly,
1: relax the shoulders. Might take a deep breath or two. This is the arriving aspect of practice,
2: just
0: coming into this body
1: moment. And feeling the body breathing. A lot of the body moves with the breath. The
0: chest and the belly, as the ribs expand and contract, the back moves, shoulders sometimes
1: rise and fall. With the breath. And then the sensations. Sensations of air coming in and out. But this practice... We use the center of the chest, the
0: area called the heart center as the
1: focal point for the breath. So this is the point in the body that's
0: often associated with emotions and especially with Love or compassion.
1: Here we can
0: feel an openness, kind of exchange of energy, or we can also feel closed. It's interesting that what we consider to be a kind of spiritual state or attitude energy also
1: connects somewhere in the body. This
0: has the relationship to the greater system of chakras, which is a whole other way of
1: viewing the energy in the body. letting the attention
0: move with the breath and the heart. And with each breath have a sense of opening. Just a little more surrendering.
1: Just a little more. So as we do this practice, we want to Stay in touch with what we're feeling.
0: It's a practice that's meant to cultivate the good, cultivate love. It's not necessarily what arises.
1: We don't control the results of this effort. Stay in tune with those feelings at the heart. And then our first piece is to bring to mind
0: someone who is very dear to you. Someone who is easy
1: to love. No obstruction. As you find that
0: person, just seeing what it feels like, To think
1: of this beloved person, feeling the breath at the heart, and we use
0: phrases typically to express our love to the people we're sending it to. You can come up with your own phrases. I'll suggest some traditional ones. You can use them or others. As you think of this beloved person, and you might see them in your mind, or just have a sense of being close to them, Say to them, may you be happy.
1: May you be peaceful. May you be safe. This practice, we want to keep phrases going more or less continuously.
0: They can be slow. They can go with the breath at whatever pace, feels comfortable. Whatever pace helps you to stay focused. May you be happy.
1: May you be peaceful. May you be safe. Not forcing any feeling or
0: expecting any result. Just engaging in the process with mindfulness and with kindness,
1: openness. Working with the beloved is also
0: a way of clarifying what loving-kindness is, getting a kind of pure taste. So that as we move through the various different people that we know what it is that we are
1: talking about, of course, we can't expect to have the same feeling for everyone that we
0: have for the beloved. It just allows us
1: to see what our capacity for love is. So, the next stage of this practice is to offer loving kindness to ourselves. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. Going to take that in without judgment or analysis. If there's resistance, just seeing that.
0: And part of the practice is to just see what arises. Not to judge that or try to force that. Just engage in the process. May I be happy.
1: May I be peaceful. May I be safe. Letting the phrases continue. Now we begin to send loving-kindness
0: to all the people that we care for, all our dear ones,
1: dear family members, dear friends, dear intimates, letting
0: images or the thought of them, could even be naming them in your mind. However, it's easiest for you. Just kind of going through people, letting them come up as you breathe and continue the phrases. All these dear ones, really to enjoy thinking of these dear people
1: and how you care about them. You'll be happy. may you be happy may you be peaceful may you be safe staying with the heart Now we move to it's called the neutral person.
2: And this can take a little
0: practice to figure out. Find someone who we can think of who we don't have a positive or negative feeling about. So you can use someone that you see maybe at a cafe that you frequent or some store it could be a neighbor down the street that you don't really know but you just see them walking the dog from time to time it's somebody that's just got no feeling for you but who you can think of take a moment see if you can find someone like that it doesn't really matter who it is
2: There's no
1: triggers. I use the security guard at my bank. Don't know his name. I can see his face. Be happy. We know that this person
0: wants to be happy and peaceful and safe. We might not know anything else about them,
1: but we can be sure of that. Staying with the heart and seeing what
0: happens to this sweet, loving-kindness
1: attached to someone where there's no triggers. Mind, stay focused on the words and the breath and the image of this person. Now turn to find a a difficult person. Again, watching the mind, watching the heart. You're
0: just doing your best, not expecting perfection. Bring to mind someone maybe someone we have a relationship with, that there's a conflict or resentment. Or it could be just someone we know of, like a public figure.
1: You don't have to take the most difficult person. Not just someone. Any pleasant feelings in your mind, your heart.
0: For a few moments, letting go of any judgment or negativity and just recognizing that no matter what they've done or who they are, they have this same longing. May you
1: be happy, peaceful, may you be safe. Stay with a feeling of ease, not struggling, the easeful breath in the heart, openness. May you be happy. Now beginning to radiate loving kindness. Begin by sending loving kindness to everyone in this room.
0: All be happy.
1: May you be peaceful.
0: May you be safe.
1: Sense of this opening and expansiveness. Letting go of sense of boundaries around our consciousness, around our hearts. Buddha calls the boundless heart. Filling this space with loving kindness. Filling this building with loving kindness. Sense of surrender.
0: Loving kindness flows through you. Outwards, in all directions. Upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths.
1: Outwards and unbounded. The loving kindness spreads outwards
0: across spirit rock, this hillside. people who are on retreat up the hill, and the teachers, and the staff, the deer who live in these
1: meadows, in these woods, the frogs, the wild turkeys, the animals that
0: live in the ground, the insects, the birds of kind of spreading across this land, outwards towards the ocean, towards the land, the continent. Loving-kindness growing, spreading, boundless, outwards across all of North America, outwards to the Pacific, northward and south, east and west, loving-kindness vast, spreading around the planet. You might see the planet in your eyes
1: or have a feeling of holding it. it is limitless our own heart can hold this whole planet touching all the beings on earth those who are happy and
0: those who are sad, those who are healthy and those who are sick, those who are being born and those who are dying, people in prison, people free, people at war
1: and under oppression, people at peace and in safety. This vast planet, all the life
0: on this planet, this fragile planet, sending love to the planet itself, to the air and the water, the forests, the prairies, the earth,
1: that it might all heal all of nature and all the beings of nature can live in harmony. Feeling that vastness of your own heart, that
0: capacity. Go beyond what you think of as yourself
1: with your mind, with your heart. Connecting with that primal wish for harmony. Now coming back, back into this room
0: back into this body,
1: into this heart, into this breath. Feeling yourself here, breathing, knowing that you are connected to all of that.
0: Any time you remember
1: and open your heart in this way, that you are part of this planet, part of this universe, that you contain limitless love, Uh, Let's just take a little break. Some more. All right, I'm having too much
0: fun, so uh, I guess I'll continue to have fun. I'll talk. Um, geez, so welcome back. Uh, and uh, I, I um, someone, uh, oh, I guess she's ringing the bell to get people back here. Uh, but I'll, I'll start anyway. Um, I have a regular class over in. Berkeley, the fourth Tuesday of each month. Anybody who's in the East Bay or wants to come over to the East Bay. um, At the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. That's on my website. My website is net, which has all of my schedule. And there's a lot of stuff on my schedule, by the way. (laughs) I mentioned the spirit rock things. Uh, In April, I'll be in Colorado. If you have friends out there. In May, I'll be in Minnesota. In June, I'll be at Cloud Mountain. That's a good thing to come to—five-day intensive meditation retreat, Cloud Mountain, southern in southern Washington. And I'm going to go out to uh, New York State to Omega. And uh, anyway, so if you're interested in doing something more than just an evening, uh, go to my website and look look it up. Um, so, uh, I was at the monastery in Berkeley last month, and after I kind of gave my talk, someone said, "I thought you were going to talk more about the twelve steps." And I was like, "Oops, sorry um, so as I kind of was talking about earlier, you know I guess as i i 've been getting more dharma uh, oriented than twelve step oriented in my teaching and um, So I thought I would try to uh, bring myself back to talking about a step tonight, Uh, specifically step two, uh, which is really what I did for several years. This class has been going on for many years, and I would go through the cycle of the steps each year. But I've been, you know, I kind of go in and out of it nowadays. But it would be nice to talk about step two. Step two says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I was actually reading... This is the the one of my books which is le- least popular. It could use a little boost. Uh, it, it's called A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. And uh, uh, there are many people, including me, who think it's the best written book. And it's the deep of my, not of the world, but almost, you know. There's James Joyce and then there's a few other people. Um sorry but uh, it 's definitely the sort of the most dharma oriented book and and so I was actually reading it today to look at what I said in two thousand and ten about step two um, and it was pretty good. Maybe I should just read it to you and i <laughs> say <laughs> won 't have to make it you t- have a talk um, no uh, I, I find it you know it's step 2 is a really interesting step. So let me say it again we we came to we, the we is implied right just to, the step as it says in the book it starts with the verb came to believe but it's implied we right all the steps are we, all right sorry that now I'm just getting going too far. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now the obvious problem with this uh, starting for you know from a Buddhist viewpoint, I notice myself saying "Buddhist" a lot. Like, like it's a dirty word or something. It's, I just something about sort of like uh, what what is it? I don't know. I'm I'm expecting you to kind of just interpret what I'm trying to what I'm thinking. Uh, so there's a cloud floating over there with my thought in it. Um, just I don't like sort of. Somehow it feels like some kind of a, uh, like costume that you're putting on, or some, uh, you know, big sign. I'm a Buddhist. You know, it's like. Um, anyway, let me get off that. Uh, the problem for a Buddhist would be that it's talking about a higher power, and in Buddhism we don't really talk about a higher power. We certainly talk don't talk about. God in the monotheistic sense. In the Pali Canon, there's lots of gods, but they come to hear the Buddha speak. So they're definitely not in control of everything. I think the gods in the Pali Canon are more like what we would call in our culture angels. They're like people that are living on another, beings that are living on another plane. It's a very pleasant place, but it's not liberation, and it's not permanent either. So... Maybe we think angels are there forever, but Buddhists don't think anything is forever. But to start, let's start at the beginning of the step instead of at the end or the middle. So, coming to believe, just in, you know, bringing this into kind of connecting it with Buddhist teachings. A lot of people think that in Buddhism you're not supposed to believe anything, and that's that's fair enough but on the other hand faith is considered very important in buddhism so it's not faith in a dogma like a religious belief system but it's faith in the potential in your potential in the in the possibility of freedom faith in the path itself faith in the teachings um, so I guess there is some faith in the dogma now that I mention it. But it's, it's not taking on a a, 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 you know, a blind faith. It's, it's a faith that's, first of all, meant to be developed as a process. Not that we have to take on, okay, now that I'm a Buddhist, I believe that there is no self. Now that I'm a Buddhist, I believe that there is suffering and that if I do this, I'll become enlightened. It's more like, that Buddhism stuff sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I'll go and, and try a meditation class. So that requires a certain amount of faith, right? Because if you don't have faith or belief you know, that, that there's going to be some value in it, you wouldn't even show up for the first class. So, and that's enough, Right, so the idea is you come and you take this class. Huh, that was pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, the meditating. Uh, kind of interesting. Uh, something happened. I don't know. I think I'll go again. So a little more faith, right? Oh, that was. I took the six-week class. Hmm. Maybe I'll try that day-long. Oh, by the way, I'm teaching a day-long next weekend. So, just thought I'd mention that. Take a couple of day longs. You know, start, oh, they they said I should try meditating every day. Oh, I'll try to start to do this as a regular thing. So we see how it's a developmental process, a developmental faith. Um, but each movement forward requires that we trust that more commitment is going to bring something more to us out of it. Faith is called one of the five spiritual powers or faculties in Buddhism. So it's really seen as a power in and of itself. So it's not even, oh, having faith in a, in a higher power. It's having faith itself is powerful. Well, we can see how that's true because these actions that I'm talking about taking, if you don't have that faith you don't take any action. You don't learn to meditate, or you don't go to a program. You you don't stop drinking and using, because you don't have faith. So we can see how, you know, stepping totally out of the religious realm, just thinking about faith as a mental quality, is vital for any kind of change or growth in our life. We can't move forward... If we don't trust in something. Otherwise we just stay within the bounds of our you know limited ideas of what we already have experienced, what we already know. So this is I think as for me, this is as important in step two as the idea of higher power. So moving on with the step it says came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, Again, it's interesting that what our minds do as Westerners, I think it's what my mind did when I came to the steps, and it seems to be what most people do, is when we hear that, that a power greater than ourselves, we immediately turn that power into a being. You know, in step three where it says him doesn't help, Right? And that's actually the one word that I would change from the steps. That's the only word, the "him." I would take that out of the steps if I were going to rewrite the steps. But there's really, when we hear this, a power greater than ourselves. what, what is it? Why is it that we make that into a a being? You know, and I, I, that's it's worth reflecting on. Uh, you know, I would just say that everything that goes on in our mind like that, all those projections are conditioned. So we get conditioned to see and think of God as a being. So we kind of have the Sistine Chapel vision of God right up there in the clouds with the beard and all that. So I think it's really important, especially if you're approaching this through a Buddhist lens, to kind of back out and go, okay, a power greater than myself. Well, let me think of some things that are powers that are greater than myself. So that, you know, we can, all kinds of things are powers greater than me. Um, And, uh, but since we're talking about Uh, you know, a transformative power, a spiritual power, then we'll kind of limit it. We won't get into all the things like the economy or the, you know, the government or something being powers greater than us. Um, So, now we can turn to the Dharma as a power. If we're just looking for a power, not not for a guy, you know, if we're looking for a power, we say, "Well, what's, what, what are the things that, what are the power, what kind of power might help me to restore my sanity?" Well, look at the Eightfold Path, and we find eight candidates right there. And first of all, we start with the power of mindfulness. This is you know the, the center of the, Buddha, the Buddhist teaching of what he um, offered as tool, a tool for waking up, for freedom, for ending suffering. And so if we think of, you know, the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering, we can put that in recovery terms, talking about addiction and recovery. Right. So what the Buddha taught was that the, end of, the way to the end of suffering was the eightfold path, and that mindfulness was the key to all of those eight elements. It's one of the elements, but it's also the key to all the, the other seven so we see that this in itself is a power and that we can call upon this to restore us to sanity. Now, um, I might take, uh, if someone would just like put a bookmark there, like remember what I just said, that mindfulness could restore us to sanity, so we can, that we're going to uh, uh, talk about what that means because I'm going to forget where I was so I'm counting on you I want to go uh, step into a little sidetrack which is uh, the word uh, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity The because when we call upon mindfulness we're, we are engaged in that process we aren't Praying to mindfulness. Mindfulness, please restore me to sanity. That doesn't make any sense, right? So I am engaged (laughs) with, I somehow have to be mindful. And in the 12 step world, especially, that sounds like a problem because if, you know, I'm the problem. Then how can
1: I solve the problem by being mindful? So here we have to dig a little deeper.
0: From a, and when we look at what the Buddha says about this idea of I, he says that there's no one thing that you can point to. That is I, that your body isn't I, it's not me, it's not mine, that your thoughts are not I, me, or mine, that your emotions are not I, me, or mine, that your past, your plans, your kids, your dog, none of them are I, me, or mine. And if for just a branch off this sideline, just want you to point out that on the Beatle album, let it be. There is a song called "I, Me, Mine," George Harrison. So you might want to listen to
1: that. It'll explain some of what I am saying. So we can get tossed into this kind of. All well, now, I am seeing myself in a dryer,
0: like I, Me, Mine. Uh, you know, we, whoever they are. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, okay, let's put it in let me get those people out of the way and say, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Who's the me? And if I am if I'm not doing this, if God isn't doing this, if I am doing it with mindfulness, it seems like I'm in trouble. So this is how I think we have to take this apart. That instead of thinking there's no self, which is just kind of like, oh, whoop, there's no self. Oh, but I'm still here, right? Wait, let me check my driver's license. No. Um That we think about that there are many selves basically in practical terms i think this is a better description of a human being that a human being has many different selves so for instance we have different roles you know you when you're at work you know you maybe you're a nurse at work when you come home maybe you're a mother you know and Uh, when you come to Spirit Rock you're a meditator. When you go to an AA meeting you're an alcoholic. You know? But none of you don't think that any of those are who you are, right? But that you sort of when you're in that place, you're in that role. One of the problems in life is when you take one role and try to act it out in the wrong place. Like you're the boss of the company and you come home and try to t- t- treat your children as though you're, they were your employees or your partner, right? So rather than thinking, oh, there's no self, which just kind of leaves you like, uh, what, how am I going to work the steps? <laughs> uh, we can think of, there's your addict self. Because we sort of know this, right? We... People will say things like, I wasn't myself, right? I wasn't myself that night, you know. Or I really felt I really feel like I'm my myself, my best self right now. So we start to see that there are these different aspects of ourselves. And the self that needs to be restored to sanity is very different. Uh, I'm saying this, I may, I may backtrack on this uh, in a minute. Sorry about that, especially people who are listening to this on headphones somewhere. Um, the self that needs to be restored to sanity is different from the self that is being mindful. Mindfulness, in itself, by, in Buddhist terms, is being mindful, is almost the definition of being sane as a Buddhist, right? The, the Buddha talks about delusion, right? Delusion is when you're not being mindful or ignorance. These are, these are sort of uh, synonyms for madness in Buddhism or, you know, being just way off. So if we can see that there's an aspect of us that can be mindful that can actually help to heal the part of us that's the addict part you know and i th- think we all we have these experiences you know where i mean just practicing meditation you see this you see your different selves you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're like in this story right and you're like why am i thinking about that like why am i so obsessed with that or mad at that person or whatever you know you, and and well you so one part of you is observing another part of you. There's different ways of explaining this, but I'm not really interested in the theory of it. What I'm interested in is the practice of it, right? which is how do I come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore us to sanity? How can that work for me if I don't believe that there's a guy out there or a woman? You know, you know, it's not a gendered being, out there, how am I? How am I going to do that? And what I think I have to do, if I'm, you know, conceptually, if I need to solve this, I, me, mine problem, I have to think of it in these terms. So now we're going to come back. Okay, the sidetrack is over, but although it might not be satisfactorily completed, it was the best I could do tonight. Now this mindfulness can restore us to sanity, right? And it begins this process. So the Eightfold Path is a great uh, whole model for what this involves. So mindfulness means that we are aware, we're conscious, we're awake. So we're seeing our craving, we're seeing our reactivity, our emotions. We're seeing our thinking, stinking or otherwise. Um, you know, we're, we're observing all that. And then, because we have the first aspect of the Eightfold Path, right view, we see how suffering arises and we see how it ends. So we see what the cycle is that gets us into our behavior, how we get trapped. So the Four Noble Truths kind of show that. The, the first two noble truths, the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering, show us how clinging causes suffering. So we see that, which is actually what happens also in step one. We see it, and then, and we have to be mindful to see it. We see it with mindfulness, and then we see, oh, this is how it is, so I need to start to do things differently, which is what we call right intention. I need to make different choices. So these two things first two aspects of the Eightfold Path are very powerful. Without right view, there's no possibility of change because you can't see the way things are. Without right intention, you can't make, take any action. You're just sitting there, oh yeah, I get it, but I'm not going to do anything about it. That's not enough, right? So each of these has a role and, a, and has an element of power within it. After right intention comes right action, right speech, right livelihood—the uh, three middle elements of the Eightfold Path. So this is the outward expression of wisdom, the outward expression of our right intention. Again, very powerful. Following precepts, doing the next right thing—you know, speaking the truth—these things have powerful effects on our lives. In, we could see it very clearly when we think of the opposite. What happens when we don't follow precepts? When we lie, cheat, and steal? You know, when we harm people uh, physically, sexually? When we rip people off? When all the all the things that we we did to others, as well as what happens when we you know harm ourselves? When we continue to act on craving? So we see that. These elements of the Eightfold Path are not theoretical sort of uh, edicts, you know. They are guidelines to change. They are guidelines to returning to sanity. Then the last three elements of the path, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. These are the ones that train the mind. So in order to actually fulfill this path... To live this path, we have to train the mind to be awake, to be balanced. You know, the, the practice of meditation, has, it has two main uh, effects that we're, we're working towards. One is that it uh, changes the way we experience the world. Because when we have inner peace and non-reactivity, what we call equanimity, then we're not so disturbed by external forces, and it changes so it changes the way we experience the world. that's the peace or the stress reduction you know they call if you put it in those very uh kind of banal terms uh, and then we it changes the way we experience the world, and it changes the way we see the world, which is the insight that we have we see, oh, this is how I get caught, this is how I get how I wind up hurting people or why, why I tend to relapse, or where I get stuck. Uh, and then we, these insights then help us to, to behave differently, but they, but they help us to see the world differently. So you, know, you pick up the newspaper and you can go, oh, all these horrible things are happening. Or you can go, oh, there's greed, hatred, and delusion. And, just, and seeing, seeing the world through the lens of dharma rather than through this kind of conditioned lens of me, like, oh, what does this mean to me? Or, or this more really just uh, kind of chaotic version or, or um, even historical version. If we, if we think of it as, oh, the, the newspaper is just an expression of human failings, the three poisons, then we see, oh, this is just what humans do. Uh, people who are untrained—what you know—the the Buddha calls untrained worldlings. Uh, you know, people who don't realize, who don't see how suffering is created, who don't see how you know how karma works, who don't see the Four Noble Truths, who continue to act on these uh, on these impulses that are that are. Uh, you know unchecked and and just create more suffering then that really changes when when you look at the world in that way it's not as disturbing because they're inherent to that view is acceptance right well this is the way things are i you know greed hatred and delusion i didn't make that up you know it's not just something that's happening now it's what the buddha was talking about 2500 years ago and you know, as long as there have been, you know, humans, certainly, uh, they, they act on these impulses. That's, so that's changing the way we experience the world, changing the way we see the world. Very powerful, very healing. You don't feel so crazy when you have those, when you develop those qualities. So, the. The process that allows this all to happen is what we call the law of karma. So the law of car- the word karma in Sanskrit, which in Pali it's kama, there's no R, it's K-A-M-M-A. The law of karma, well, the word karma just means action. And it doesn't mean fate. You know, it doesn't mean rebirth. It just means action. And the law of karma excuse me, is that actions have results. And that all results are caused by actions. Now actions have three forms. Thoughts, words, and deeds. So we create karma in our lives. That is, we create results through
1: thinking, speaking, and Acting Change
0: is, change is, is constant. The actions that we take determine the direction of change or the movement of change in our lives. now, of course, this is uh, you know, a simplistic version of talking about karma because you know we've got all these different beings creating karma that's banging into each other so sometimes things can happen to you that are the results of someone else's thoughts words or deeds but to keep it contained here in in this discussion of the step one way to to accept that the truth of this step is to is to see that if I take certain types of actions, because the law of karma or karma is very powerful. It's in some sense the most powerful non-physical power in the universe. Maybe put that aside. Uh, it's a claim. Huh? Um, because it's very powerful, if I act in accord with karma, inevitably there will be positive results. If I act out of accord with karma, inevitably there will be negative results. So, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore sanity. Let's take the opposite, that you don't believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. If... We see that the law of karma is what is running all this, which is determining how actions play out, then if we don't believe that we can be restored to sanity by living in harmony with the law of karma, then we don't believe in the law of karma, which you don't which means you don't believe in cause and effect, which some people don't. You know, there's it's a common religious belief and it was it was it, uh, something that was existed at the time of the Buddha as well, that everything is preordained. That there's some power that sets up things and you know, I think and is it like Presbyterians or somebody who believe that? I don't know. It's one of those Protestant But that that's actually a belief. I think it's crazy, but maybe i haven 't been restored to sanity maybe i 'm crazy i don 't know, but uh, you know the, for most of us when, we hear, when if we think of it in these terms well it 's cause and effect being restored to sanity just takes doing the next right thing in 12 step language, then it 's not so mystical or religious, and it 's not about a being out there who's going to pull the strings. It's about how do I live in harmony with the law of karma? How do I take the skillful actions that will restore me to sanity, that will heal me, that will help, help my life move forward? So guess what? What did the Buddha teach to, to live in harmony with the law of karma? The Eightfold Path. That's what the Eightfold Path is. It is a system for living in harmony with the law of karma. And
1: okay, now you've all been restored to sanity. You may return home. All right, I don't know if that was like too fast or
0: like, I don't know. Was it? I hope you were with me. But as I said, All basically in here, as I said it seven years ago, so um, we have some time we have about ten minutes uh, if there are any questions and and I will mention too that uh, since i didn 't leave time for questions after the meditation uh, you 're welcome to ask questions about uh, that loving kindness practice as well, um, so if there are any Thoughts or questions, if I haven't completely blurred your mind with that. Here's a hand. Here's a microphone. Thank you.
3: Um, Maybe say your name first. I am Patrick. Hi, Patrick. When You're talking about the concept of separate selves and Uh parts of us. I think of a dream I had recently. It could be related to a bardo, I -hmm. guess, in a way. Um, it didn't bring about a drastic physical change in my day to day, but it did bring about an awareness that I didn't have for a long time.
1: Um, kind of, or my mind went as you were speaking. Oh. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I thought of is
3: uh, when you're talking of karma, it, I think it's easy to get trapped in the cause and effect of like you're here and now, this one lifetime. But as I believe, or as I understand, karma is a
1: collective of all your lifetimes. Well, that's the traditional uh, Buddhist teaching. Um...
0: And I, I I don't know what to do with it, really. I mean, I, what I do with it is I just, um, I don't really have a stand. Like, the idea, like, since I don't have any personal recollection, and supposedly there are people who have recollections of past lives, since I don't have any personal experience, um, even though some wise people uh, say that that's the case. But since I don't have personal experience, I uh, try to n- not have an opinion about it. Because it seems kind of silly. It's, you know, believing in something or not believing in something that you don't have any evidence about, you know, always seems sort of random to me. Like, it's it's actually very, I think it's very human to do that because humans don't like uncertainty so it's much easier to say well I, you know i believe in that you know blah blah and that's that's the way it is and then we kind of put that in the box and say, okay i'm good i i'm just not i'm actually more uncomfortable with that <laughs> i'd rather have uncertainty than have you know claim to have certainty about something that i don't know anything about and you know the buddha addresses this at one point where he says, "Yes, there is rebirth, but you don 't really need to believe it because either way, you should live a skillful life, like you should live wisely and compassionately. What, if this is your only life, then you should make the most of it and do you know have a good life, be good, uh, not so you can be reborn again, but because you know living." Wisely and kindly is what brings happiness, right? Uh, and, and he says, so if you don't believe in it, you should still live this way. And if you do believe in it, then of course you want to live wisely so that your next life will be you know, beneficial or a good life as well. So, so I'm satisfied with that. Um, I'll take my chances because I don't think my belief about it is going to have any effect on it any more than my belief in God, like, creates or doesn't create God. Or maybe, I don't know, if you really want to get metaphysical, you could say that your belief in God creates God. But then I'm just going down a rabbit hole that I'd rather avoid.
3: Can I throw something in real quick, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You
0: have the microphone. How can I stop you? you
3: (laughs) That's true. Um, I was reading these studies that, like, every seven years were, like, uh, it's like rebirth, like ourselves, yeah. everything like that, like die every seven years. So, And they were even kind of pointing that maybe the Buddha even knew about that when he was referring to, you know, past lives that are, you know, in this, like, life. So, anyways.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'd have to... I can
3: swallow that a lot easier. I'd,
0: as, I'd have to you know. defer to the scholars on any the question about what was the Buddha, like, to, if I'm not going to take literally what, it can see in the Pali Canon, then if someone is going to make an argument that he didn't mean that, yeah. what he's saying, then I would have to defer to someone who was more of a scholar, who could go, you know, pull out all the uh, different things. Because he's pretty explicit that, in fact, on the night of his enlightenment, he remembered all his past lives. Yeah. And it's pretty hard to get around that you know, and like try to turn that into oh, he just remembers like being reborn moment by moment because self is being created, which is one of the modern ways that Buddhists uh, take reincarnation to say oh it 's like ego is being reincarnated, and enlightenment is is stopping creating self moment by moment, and I think that that 's a beautiful aspiration and a and a good um, you know kind of way of uh, interpreting it. But again, I just find it it's just not a place I'm, you know, I i, I don't feel like I need to go there. Uh, I, you know, and and I th- again, I, I would say that I have some backing even from the Buddha who kind of says, like, the important thing is to figure out why you're suffering and change that. <laughs> and if thinking about reincarnation isn't going to do that, which so far it hasn't, then I'm not going to do it.
3: But we're definitely not the same person we
1: were yesterday. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy over here, So after him. I'm
3: Pete. Pete. Um, for myself, I find when I'm uh, tangling with words and the steps. It's usually because I don't want to do the work that's ask, being asked of me in the step. Right on. Um, but though saying that, um, the question about coming to believe in a power came to believe, you, you mentioned mindfulness kind of an awakening. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I, I would always get stuck right there, in the, in the, right in the beginning of the steps. I'm just, I just started, my my step when I came, when I, when I
1: started, I, I want to stop drinking, I can't stop drinking, I don't know about it. And then uh, I was able, with your guys' help,
3: get through the steps. And in the end, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of doing the steps. That always took me back to, how did I get through that second step? How did I come to believe when I didn't believe a thing? So, I guess I'm asking the question again. How do I always renew my faith in that step when I really didn't have any faith in it to begin with?
0: Well, I, I think your your first question too is even more essential. Like, how do I stop
1: t- drinking? You know, and how does that, uh, uh, so. But since you're not asking me that, I won't
0: try to answer it. Um, how do you renew your faith? You know I think it's really again like well, I guess what I do is that I stop and try to remind myself what my core kind of values are what it is that I really want, because I think that when i get off uh, from my program or my spiritual you know connection it's when i'm focusing on you know outside issues things that aren't really my core purpose and aren't the things that and are, aren't the things that really bring me peace and happiness so i have to remind myself oh you know wow Yeah, maybe I should go to some meetings or maybe maybe I should go on a retreat or maybe I should just go take a walk or, you know, something that's not like, you know, drilling down on links to how pissed off I am about, you know, the state of the world, you know, just for example, for something that might upset my spiritual condition, an example, um, so yeah, I think it's, and that's something that right we do moment to moment too, but it also can be like a big like whoa, I'm kind of off track. Like I've been, what have I been doing the last couple of months? And it's so I guess for me it's coming back kind of to right intention um, because the faith in what works. I'm not sure that it's it's not so much that I lose the faith. But I forget what it is that I really believe in, right? Because that's the, you know, the you know the thing of alcoholism. The, the ism is incredibly short memory. Uh, that it's kind of like that. Like I forget. Like oh, what am I doing with my life? You know, or this day or this year. You know? and, and so for me, it's that kind of coming back to uh, my core principles and, and remembering what it is that I believe in. Thank you. It's a good question. So we're actually out of time. I know if it's a really good question and I can answer it in twelve seconds. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Or oh, you can talk to me um, afterwards. I'll be I'll be here. Yeah. Thank you. So l- let me just take a moment to wrap us up uh, <laughs> with a nice little bow. <laughs> it's nice we did some loving kindness practice tonight, so we have that
1: already. I' uh, just going back inside for a moment Oh, I just realized
0: this isn't the end of the class. I have more time. I lost track of time. Do you want to go home early, or do you want to go? <laughs> I'm sorry. that's really bad. OK. We'll close.
1: Breathing into the body and this is a time for many of us when
0: staying connected to what is important to us
1: is challenging many distractions in the world. And to know and to
0: connect with what really does express our deepest values.
1: We truly believe that all beings deserve love. then we have to find some way of engaging the world with love and wisdom not foolish love be courageous love Our practice is meant to help us to have that courage. Our recovery is meant to help us to live in this world without harming others, without hating others. The Buddha challenges us to live fully engaged without letting anger or the wish to control or fear take us over. How do we stay present, not run away, and yet not rebel? Our practice helps us to have that balance so that we can experience the world with equanimity
0: and we can see the truth
1: of what is happening with the highest wisdom. Oh, so May we all carry this
0: heart quality within us.
1: May we stay present, awake, our hearts open and strong. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you. Hope that I see some of you next weekend, and uh, if not, next month. Travel safely.